one of the things I wanted to do is bring you up to speed on our lives a little bit. Um, one thing I've learned about following God is it is always an adventure. And number two, God always knows what he's doing. Um, it is so interesting that, uh, I don't know if you've been aware, but tensions are building up in China uh, so much so that we were not able to return to China in our May through June trip, and we were really disappointed. We were seeking the Lord, trying to find out what he had in mind, and sure enough, God had some great things in mind. In, in April, I spent most of the month of April in Nepal, uh, having the opportunity to teach young students who are preparing for the ministry. Uh, we went through uh, some great truth from God's Word on how to make disciples who make disciples, and so it was exciting. Then I got an email asking me to come to Ethiopia, so we spent a part of the month of May in Ethiopia training young pastors, most of whom had never had any formal training, and we shared with them the, uh, the subject of biblical theology, which is a Genesis to Revelation survey of how it's all tied together with Jesus. And uh, so we spent... Uh, about eight days, eight hours a day teaching these young guys and young women who are so hungry to know deeper truth. So it's exciting to me that even though we had the disappointment of not being able to go back to China and we're praying that we'll be able to go back in the fall, but we're still, uh, it's still up in the air. But God always knows what he's doing. So I just wanted to share with you that we are really excited about what God is doing and where we're going. And tonight I'm excited because this passage, and turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Kind of the focus of 1 Timothy 5 is, is wisdom for the church. Uh, Paul has been writing to Timothy. He is his son in the faith. Paul loves Timothy. He, it's not just a, a guy that he's trained. This is his son, and Paul is helping Timothy, who is not a real uh, outward guy. He's not a real bold guy. He's a little on the timid side, uh, but he has a great heart. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, A, to kind of kick him in the rear that, hey, Timothy, there are some things you've got to take care of. And, and secondly, uh, to give Timothy, Timothy some wisdom. And as we look at 1 Timothy 5 tonight, there's something I want you guys to understand. There's, a, there's an overriding principle. And that's that we can save ourselves a lot of trouble if we'll just do what God says. Okay, and let me repeat that. We can save ourselves a lot of trouble if we can do what God says. The reason I say this is I've had 34 years in the ministry, not just at the church, but helping pastors from other churches who are going through crises and I find that so many of the times when the churches stumble, it's simply because they're not doing what God said to do. And so tonight we're going to look at some principles of how do we, uh, how do we live as a church in a way that's going to foster the unity of the Spirit, that's going to continue us on a kingdom mindset and allow us to glorify God. So, uh, I want to bring you to where we're going on this. Uh, three basic uh, divisions in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
in 1 through 2, Paul is going to teach us how do you admonish people. Uh, The word admonish, by the way, means to warn. Uh, And one of the things that we don't do very well as Christians is when we see a Christian going off the rails, we just say, oh, who am I to intervene? Who am I to uh, tell him that he's wrong? Who am I to help her understand that she's on the wrong path? Well, who you are is you're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And so we've been called to admonish people, but we have to learn to do it in the right way. So in 1 through 2, Paul is going to talk about how do you admonish people wisely? Then in 3 through 16, Paul is going to go into the area of caring for widows. And this is such an exciting passage for me because it helps me understand, you know what? God did not give government the role of caring for the poor. He gave families the role of caring for the poor, and then he gave the church the role of caring for the poor. And we sort of said, oh, great, Social Security, Medicare, take care. Oh, let's let the government do it, and then we don't have to do it. We can just spend our money wherever we want. That's not what God wants. And so we're going to see that in 3 through 16. Then in 17 through 25, Paul is going to take up the issue of elders. And when we talk about elders, you notice in the New Testament, they don't use the word pastors very much. In fact, really only once. And so when we're talking about elders, we're talking about both uh, what we would call today lay elders, people who actually have a real job and they're serving as leaders in the church, and also pastors who are working full-time in the ministry. How do we care for these guys who are leading us? So uh, let's jump in. And what we're going to do, let me read for you verses 1 and 2. And if you've got your Bibles, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I want to read verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, the the topic of both of these verses is rebuking people. And Paul has given Timothy instruction, not just for Timothy as a leader, but for all of the people in the church. How do you admonish people? How do you warn people? And I want to add a scripture, if you've got, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, write down Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Here Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. He doesn't say you who are pastors, you who have a seminary degree, uh, you who have the title reverend or pastor in front of your name, you who are spiritual. In other words, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is to you. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore, if you've heard Galatians taught, you know this, that the word restore has to do with the idea of mending of nets. It's the idea that a fisherman has a net that he's been using for a long time, and man, some of the uh, parts of the net have broken, and there are holes in the net. And the net isn't working anymore. And in order for a fisherman to be able to use that net, he's got to restore it. He's got to mend the net so that it will be useful again. And that's what we're doing. We're helping each other return to a place of usefulness in the body of Christ. So we don't do this because we're mad at him. 
We don't do this because we're offended by their sin, so we can say, hey, you shouldn't do that anymore. No, he says, you who are spiritual, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch over yourself, lest you also be tempted. And I've seen so many times people who are helping others actually fall into the sin that they're trying to warn the person out of. I don't know what it is about that. But Paul says you need to have a humility that you realize, hey, you could fall into that. And then verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let's talk about this. There are times as brothers and sisters in Christ when we need to get into each other's lives and into each other's faces. If a person is heading for a cliff and they're driving at 100 miles an hour and you know that and you can see that, you are literally hating the person if you refuse to get involved. You might say, oh, who am I to say anything? Who you are is a brother or sister in Christ who knows what's going on. I'll tell you, you know, you know what I hated in the church when I was a pastor? I hated tattletales. People would come to me and say, oh, Steve, you know what I heard? So-and-so is doing this. Do you know that they're doing it? Oh, yeah, I saw him doing it. Well, guess what? God has called you to intervene in that person's life. He hasn't called me to intervene because I'm hearing third, fourth, or fifth hand. He's called you because you know what's going on. So let's talk about how we do this. Um, There are two words in Scripture that are used. Um, One is reprove. The word reprove has to do with correcting a lack of knowledge. Now, I think you're going to see when we look at the second verse, there are two completely different levels of ministry. And when we mix these up, we wind up hurting people. Let's say a couple comes to Christ and you find out they're living together and they haven't been married. And you go, man, you shouldn't do that. You see, I'm going entirely in the wrong direction with them because their problem is they don't know what God says. They're not committing willful sin. They're stumbling into sin in ignorance. So we need, reproving is a much gentler form of correction. In fact, what I found is rather than even telling them about their sin, if I begin to hold up what God's picture of marriage is, they go, oh my goodness, we need to get married. We need, we need to get under God's plan for being husband and wife. And they get excited about this, especially if they're new believers and the Holy Spirit is working under them. But if I come off with anger, and if I come off with a, an attitude of, you scum, how could you do such a thing? You're committing immorality and fornication, and you're, you're just a horrible person. What does that do? That pushes people away. So reproving is a gentler form of, commu- of correction. It's helping people understand something that may be a blind spot for them right now. See, the nature of a blind spot is you can't see it, right? And so 
what you do, rather than having this face-to-face confrontation, you have a side-by-side confrontation where you come alongside them and you help them see what God says. So reproving is when you're dealing with a lack of knowledge, but rebuke is when you're correcting attitude. And here's what I mean. If you're dealing with a believer who knows that gossip is a sin and they are willfully engaging in the sin of gossip, they don't need to be reproved. They need to be rebuked. Rebuke is a sterner kind of confrontation. It's, hey, you know what? Uh, I know you're a mature Christian. I know you know God. And I know you know that gossip is a sin. And I'm here in the name of Jesus Christ to tell you in the name of Jesus and by the authority of God's word, you need to stop this right now. That's hard to do, isn't it? Even there, we're to have a spirit of gentleness. So you'll hear Paul say from, uh, to Timothy, actually in other places, to repro- reprove and rebuke. You do both of these, depending on the person. Now, what that means is that you're paying attention to the person you're talking to. And I want to give you a couple of principles when you're correcting. Number one, don't speak in anger. By the way, if any of you are parents, this is dynamite principles for raising your kids. Anytime you talk to your kids in anger, your kids have won. Whenever you speak in anger, bad things are going to happen. Ephesians 4, 25 and 26 says... uh, We are members of one another, so lay aside falsehood, speak truth with each other. And then he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So first of all, don't speak in anger because when your anger is in control, Satan is having his way. Principle number two, be quick to hear. Boy, uh, Proverbs 18, I'll bring this up in a minute, but it says, he who gives an anger without, gives an answer without hearing is a fool. So before you jump into rebuke mode, before even you jump into reprove mode, let him know what you've observed and say, you know what, I'd like to hear what's on your heart. Tell me what's going on. A bunch of things happen when you do this, you guys. Number one, you create an opening in their heart. When you're willing to hear them out, and this is dynamite with your kids. If they come home at 2 in the morning and they were supposed to be home at 11, boy, you can jump down their throats and you can yell at them and maybe you'll feel better. I don't think you will. But your kids go away thinking not, wow, did I blow it. They go away thinking, boy, my parents are a jerk. My parents are unreasonable. And so this is why, in my view, correcting has to start with listening. Principle number three, be slow to speak. Again, as you hear people sharing, you may want to, again, jump down their throats with a correction, but you need to measure your words and think about what you're saying. And finally, this is so important, use God's authority, not your own opinion. You know, you may say, well, I think, who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? God says. And if you can't say God says, 
boy, you better tread very lightly in any kind of correction because you're not on the authority of God's word. So use God's authority and not your own opinion. A couple of scriptures on this. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29. This is my favorite verse on communication. Write it down. This is a scripture to memorize. Let no unwholesome word, that word means rotten. Let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, to build people up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Uh, We talked about Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. So I want to encourage you as you are uh, seeing people uh, engaging in sin, as you're seeing people wandering from God, even as you see people who are just fading in their faith, if you see it, I want to tell you something. I believe that's God calling you to do something about it. You be the one to rescue them. You be the one to bring, get in their way and say, hey, I want you to think about what you're doing. Um, now, um, let's talk about specifically verses 1 and 2. What Paul is saying is so beautiful. He's saying, if, if you're a young person and you're talking to an older man, don't sharply rebuke him. Hey, what do you think you're doing? Again, for an older man who has lived a life longer than you are, there may be a lot of things that they understand that you don't. And so Paul says, hey, if you see an older man doing something that needs to be corrected, appeal to him as a father. Treat him with respect. You guys, this isn't just because it's the right thing to do. This is also because this is how you're going to get through to them. Especially older men, they do not respond to being belittled. They do not respond to being treated like somebody who doesn't know any better. They need to be treated with respect. Uh, Paul goes on to say, younger men, how do you treat them? You treat them as brothers. You don't treat guys as the enemy. You don't treat them as as someone that you need to come against and fight with them about this thing, you treat him as you would a brother. How, you, how do you treat an older woman? You treat her as your mother. How do you treat a younger woman? You treat her as your sister. Here's the overriding principle. When you're confronting a brother or sister in Christ and helping to correct them, remember we're family. Remember, we're family. Unfortunately, some of you have come from dysfunctional families where that's not a very good picture. But pretend that you're a healthy family, okay? How, if, if you actually loved your sister, if you actually loved your brother, if you actually loved your mother and father, how would you treat them? That's how Paul says we are to treat people when we are in a place of either reproving or rebuking. All right, I'd love to spend more time, but we've got to move along here. So let's look at, let me read verses 3 through 8 now. Paul talks about uh, dealing with widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own households and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. 
but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may not be, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, listen to this: he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. You guys, this is pretty heavy duty. And man, this does not fit our culture today. Because when we have people who are a burden to us, we want to shove them off somewhere. We don't want to take care of them. We don't want to be responsible for them. We don't want them interfering with our tennis game or our golf game or our, our, our fun or our vacations. We want to have our freedom. Now, let's look at what Paul is saying. Principle number one. A woman who is a widow indeed, or truly a widow, this is a woman who has no living relatives. She's been left all alone. All through this chapter, when Paul says honor, he's talking money. So Paul's command is if you have someone in the church who is a widow, they're they're alone in this world, and they've committed themselves to God and to prayer and to ministry in the body, you need to take care of them as a church. This is the responsibility of the church. And you don't hire them as an employee, but you take care of their needs so that they are now free to engage in a ministry of prayer. Now, Paul takes a step back and he says, hey, if widows have family, their family ought to take care of them. Okay, so if, if, uh, if there's a woman who's alone and she has kids and the kids aren't taking care of her, those kids need to go be reproved. Maybe they don't know any better or rebuked. Maybe they do know and they're not paying attention in the name of Jesus Christ for them to live up to their responsibility. Because God says a person who doesn't take care of his family has denied the faith. Wow. Do you realize how strong that is? Wait, wait, wait. You mean I'm not living as a great Christian? No, you've denied the very faith that has saved you. So, see, we're all about, oh, we need to talk to people about homosexuality. We need to talk to them about adultery. God says, no, we need to talk to people about taking care of their parents. We need to be, talk to pe- the church about supporting women who are destitute and in need. We need to talk about showing love. And this is one of my favorite scriptures, 1 John three seventeen. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John goes on to say, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And so Paul is really putting it on the line, both for the church and for families. We need to be taking care of people in our family who can't take care of themselves. Back then, widows was probably the largest people group of people who couldn't take care of themselves because men tended to die young, and women, like they do today, always tend to outlive the men, okay? So Paul is commanding us to take care of the widows. Now, let's go on. He says, well, let's read again verse... Seven, or no, verse six. 
But she, speaking of a widow who is self-indulgent, is dead even while she lives. So, if there's a widow in the church who is a member of the tennis club and she's out going to see movies all the time and she's partying, church has no responsibility to her. Church has a responsibility for widows who are living godly, prayer-filled lives. And this is what constitutes a genuine widow in Paul's, Paul's mind. Let's go on. Let's read verses 9 through 16. Now he begins to talk about some rules of how this works. Let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years of age. Okay, so here's, here's where things begin to get a little specific. If you have a 35-year-old widow, don't put her on the list. Paul's going to explain why in just a minute. Having been the wife of one husband, uh, the, the idea of this is that she's been faithful in marriage. And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, she has, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints. In other words, she's been a servant to the church, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So widows getting on the list is not an easy thing. If you'll notice, it's very similar to qualifications for elders. Paul, Paul is saying, look, if widows, if you want to be cared for by the church, your life needs to show visible godliness. Now he goes on, verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. One of the things about a widow being put on the list, evidently, is she's making a covenant not to marry for, for the rest of her life, but to be devoted to God. So that's Paul's idea of a widow who should be put on the list. Verse 12 and incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So what's Paul's conclusion? Verse 14, I want younger women to marry. So if you're 30, 35, or 40, and you've lost your husband, look for another man. That's what Paul's saying. Get married, get a family, raise, raise a family because you've got too much energy. You've got too much left in life to be devoted to God in prayer. Now, that sounds terrible to say, but that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, the fact is you're going to be frustrated if you're put on the list too early. You're not going to be able to live up to that pledge, and then you're going to incur condemnation. So he comes back in verse 16. Uh, verse 15, he actually is talking in experience. He says, some of these widows have already strayed after Satan. In other words, they were put on the list, they were being supported, and then they kind of got a, a sense of uh, wanderlust in them, and they strayed away. Whereas they, if they would have gotten married, they would have been fine. If any believing woman, verse 16, has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the, the priority that Paul is saying, first and foremost, is the family. If you're a widow and you're financially uh, well, you know, you're okay, then if you have relatives who are widows, you be the one to care for them. If not, 
if the widow is truly alone, then let's uh, take care of him. Now, let's go on to uh, verse 17 and begin to talk about elders, okay? Let's read verses 17 through... Let me read verses 17 through 19 so we don't go too far. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What Paul is saying is we need to pay our elders. That's what double honor means. It doesn't mean you say thank you, thank you at the end of a sermon. It means you pay them. And double honor means that you are generous with them. I don't know what the guys on staff here get paid, but I would encourage you as a church to do some research. And if they aren't paid enough that they can live comfortably in this community, you need to sacrifice to help them be able to do that. They need to be able to live without financial pressures on their life. Let's say undue financial pressure, because everybody has financial pressure, right? But they need to be able to live without undue financial pressure. Verse 18, Paul makes it clear what he's talking about. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain. So, uh, you know, you've always thought your pastors were a bunch of dumb oxes. So, well, Paul is in kind of agreement with you, you know. Hey, they're, tr- they're working to do the work of the ministry. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't, don't keep them from participating in the joy of the ministry. And part of that is the financial support. So principle number one in caring for elders, and this is really important, is those who are working hard, in other words, those who have devoted themselves to the ministry, hey, you need to take care of them. You need to grant them honor. And this is something that I would encourage all of you to be checking with the leadership of the church and saying, hey, how are we paying our pastors? Are, are we paying them in a way that is honoring to them and honoring to God. Now, Paul goes on, and he begins to talk about another way that we care for elders. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Guys, this is a critically important principle. I can't tell you how many men have been shot down in ministry because of a single false accusation. It's like somebody accuses them and everybody freaks out and they make a big stir about it and then he's out of the ministry and then later on they discovered that it was a false accusation by somebody who was really imbalanced or really had a personal bone to pick against the guy. And I've seen this happen time and time again. And here's the protection You shouldn't even receive that accusation unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, I'll tell you how this has worked out. I I had a woman call me one time, and she was asking my advice, and she was riding in a car with with her pastor to a worship conference. And what she said to me is, is the pastor reached and opened the glove box, and there were a whole group of condoms in there. 
And he says, how about if we try these out? Now, let me tell you what I told her. I told her, number one, you allowed yourself to be put in a very difficult position by riding alone in a car with a man. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, Larson, you are freaked out. What are you, you're, what are you afraid of your own shadow? Well, in this area, yeah. So here's what I told her secondly. I said, if the elders are being biblically, being biblical, uh, they are not going to receive this accusation in the sense of doing anything about it. Um, because you're one witness, and right now it's your word against his. And quite frankly, I can't tell you for sure that I believe you because I wasn't there. So there is one witness. I said, here's what I would suggest you do. I, I, I think, number one, uh, you need to tell the elders, even though they probably won't receive this accusation because you're one witness, because, but there may have been other times when other people have come forward that you don't know about. Well, she did, and she ultimately had to leave the church because it was just humiliating to her, which was a tragedy in itself. But about a year later, guess what? Two other applica- a- accusations came forward, exactly the same thing. And so at that point, the pastor was put out of the ministry. He was disciplined, and he was rebuked. And... Um, This sounds harsh that if something's happened to you, you can't do it. But the the thing that will help you in this is the character of the man will come to the surface. And while judgment may not be immediate, as immediate as you would like it, a judgment will come. I had a, another man in the ministry who was accused by a woman of of making advances against her. Uh, and again, I said, go to the elders. Uh, it turns out that they had filed five other ap- ap- accusations and hadn't done anything about it. So there's a case where, where the elders failed in that there were three legitimate accusations and they weren't doing anything about it, and all they were doing was allowing that sin to continue and to wound other Christians. So, so Paul says to Timothy, look, if one person comes against an elder with an accusation, don't receive it. But if you have two or three witnesses, and it doesn't need to be two or three different events, maybe two or three people witness the same thing. But that's when you do. Now, I have to say, early in my ministry, I was not very smart. And I would counsel women one-on-one. And as I learned a little bit of Scripture, I realized what a fool I was being. Because even though my secretary was right next door in the office, all that woman has to do is scream. And if there's something she has against me for some reason, or if I said something that offended her, and she could say, he acted inappropriately towards me, and my reputation is sunk. So what I've begun to do, uh, you know, we had rules in our ministry. Number one, a pastor should never be alone in a, a car with a woman. He should never be alone in an office with a woman. There should be places where where not only are we trying to avoid sin, but we're trying to avoid even the appearance of sin. 
And so that's an important wisdom for the leaders. Now, Paul goes on and he gets tough on the elders. Let's keep reading now. Uh, Verse 19 now, or verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, talking about elders now, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if an elder or pastor is sinning, and you've confronted him, and he persists in his sin, you are to bring him up in, the, in front of the congregation and publicly shame him, rebuke him for his sin in the presence of everyone. And the reason this is so important is, is twofold. Number one, if this happens, boy, you better believe there is a purifying effect on the congregation. Everybody goes, whoa, this church is serious about sin. And it will, it will bring a purification of the entire congregation. But there's a second reason. I had a, a, a church that was coming to me for some counsel. There was a man who came to the church and he um, uh, had committed adultery with a woman, brought great shame to the church, brought, brought great shame to himself. And when the church checked with his former church, they found out that he had done it there too. And what the church decided to do is, we'll just dismiss him quietly. And what that did is, again, that allowed the man to continue in his sinful ways, just go find another place far enough away and start all over again. And that's exactly what he did. This is hard in today's world. What is the big fear that every church has if they do something like this? Anybody? Lawsuit. If a guy is committing adultery, he's certainly not going to be constrained by the scripture not to sue another believer. And there have been lawsuits where pastors will sue churches for destroying their reputation, even though they did it by their sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I think that's a risk we have to take. Because I think we need to do what God says. Not in fear of what may happen to us, but simply because God tells us to do it. So Paul says elders are held to a different level, a different standard. If they persist in their sin, you've rebuked them, they've been warned, they continue in their sin. Hey, You need to rebuke them in the presence of all. Now, depending on the sin, if they repent of their sin at that point, you can forgive them. They shouldn't be brought back into leadership because at this point they're no longer above reproach. But they can continue in fellowship in the church if they repent. And we, in our church, EV Free, we saw that happen where we had to rebuke a person in the presence of the entire church. And praise God, he repented. God healed his marriage. And today... 30 years later, he's doing Bible studies for other couples who are struggling with the sin of adultery. And so when you do things God's way, you have a chance for genuine healing to take place. Now, Paul goes on, and let's keep talking now about elders. Now, we're in verse 20. Oh, verse 22. Oh, verse 21. In the, okay, so that all may stand in fear in the presence of God. Oh, okay. 
Verse 21 kind of begins a thought where Paul now is talking to Timothy directly. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, let me tell you what this is about. Verses 19 and 20, Paul is talking to Timothy about something that Timothy doesn't want to do. Timothy doesn't like confrontation. He doesn't like messy things like this. And I'll tell you what, I I relate to Timothy. I'm kind of a Timothy myself. If things are not going well, I'll just kind of, okay, let's just stand back and hope that things get better by themselves. And they never do. They always get worse, don't they? So Paul knows what Timothy's thinking. He's saying, well, maybe instead of two or three witnesses, I'll wait till 20 or 30 witnesses, and we'll see if we can avoid some problems that way. And Paul says, oh, Timothy, here's how important this is. In the presence of God, and of Jesus, his son, and all of his, the elect angels, I'm charging you. If you look through Timothy, you'll see this concept of Paul charging them of him saying, Timothy, this is really important. I know you don't want to do it, but you got to do it. And let me just share one thing before we go on. We want life to be comfortable, don't we? And so intuitively, we tend to avoid anything that is uncomfortable. And Paul verbally is kind of slapping Timothy in the face in a loving way. And saying, Timothy, I know you don't want to do this. But I'm charging you to do this. Now he goes on and he gives Timothy a preventative. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Let me explain what he's saying here. Paul is saying, Timothy, if you want to avoid problems of leadership, don't raise people up too quickly. Don't put young guys in leadership who are new Christians, but they may really be hot worship leaders or they may really be talented. No, don't do it. And, you know, even in worship leaders, we tend to go for young guys, make sure they're grounded in the faith. Make sure they're grounded in the truth. Make sure that they are bringing honor to Jesus Christ with their lives. Because, again, if you put them up front and they stray into sin, they bring shame to the whole church. And so you don't put people in a position of leadership too quickly. Paul says, if you do, you're actually to blame for their sin. That's what he says. Do not share in the sin of others. You're actually participating in their sin if you raise them up too quickly. Verse 23 is my uh, life verse. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, What's Paul saying? Timothy was raised as a Jewish Christian, and one of the tendencies of Jewish people was something called asceticism. And the idea of asceticism is self-denial is good just for the benefit of self-denial. In other words, you ought to give up something just because you ought to give up something. And so one of the things that godly Jewish people did is they said, oh, we should never drink wine. Now, I may be getting into trouble because some of you may be 
total abstinence people, and that's fine. I have no qualm with that view. I just don't want you to think you're holier because you have that view. Back then, the water was impure. Timothy, poor little guy, I just, I just see Timothy at this crony little guy who wasn't very healthy and wasn't very bold, and, and he would drink water, and his stomach would get all messed up, and his boss says, hey, it's okay. Drink a little wine. Paul is not telling him to go get smashed. He's not telling him to get drunk. He's just saying, look, Timothy, wine is the best medicine at our disposal for your stomach problems. It's okay. You're not sinning against God if you do this. It's okay. And the, the takeaway for me in this particular section is how much Paul loves Timothy. He really wants to set people free. Now, what's hilarious is this is right in the middle of Paul's other thought. It's like a parenthesis, and he's going to go right back to the whole idea of novices again. So don't take this too seriously. It's not that big of a deal. It was really from Paul to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, I know when you drink water, you get sick. It's like me going to Nepal. Don't drink the water. Now, if they would have had bottled water, Paul might have said, hey, Get a little Perrier or some sparkling water. It'll soothe your stomach. And that, but they didn't have it back then. So Paul suggests that Timothy drinks the only thing that he can drink that isn't going to make him sick, with the, which is a little bit of wine. Now, verse 24 and 25, and if you don't connect it to 22, you won't understand it. He says, The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later, and you're going, what? Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is still talking about not raising up a novice. And he's saying that some people, their sin is all over the place. You know, some people sin big. And so when you meet these kind of people, you go, oh, they shouldn't be a leader. You know, they're, they're huge sinners. No problem there. But Paul says that other people, the sins of others appear later. In other words, there are some people when you first meet them, you go, what a guy, what a gal, boy, this is a great person. And then as you get to know them, you go, whoa, there's some serious character flaws. Now, if you've already installed them as a leader, you got a big problem. And I have to confess, we made this mistake sometimes where we elevated a guy to elder and we found out later that he was self-centered, he was argumentative, he was angry, he was unreasonable. And it, I mean, we had a whole year where we couldn't make one decision because he'd just sit while everybody else talked. We finally come to consensus. He said, I disagree. Well, why? I don't know, I just disagree. And we had a principle in our elder board of unanimity that we had to be in consensus or we wouldn't move forward. We didn't get anything done the whole year. We finally had to remove him from the board. But if we had paid more attention to his character, we could have saved ourselves of that. Now, there's another application, by the way. If you're not married, this idea of falling in love and getting married in two weeks, and I know I'm going to get in trouble because some of you have probably done that and you've got great marriages, most of the time, you're a moron if you do that. Okay? So we'll just put it out there, okay? Um, 
Why do I say that? Because nobody can get to know anybody in two weeks. You could meet Adolf Hitler, and two weeks later you think, hey, he's a great guy, he's a good speaker, and yeah, I like this guy. But as you get to know him, you realize, man, this man is pure evil. See, some people are good at hiding their sins. They're good at hiding their flaws, and you need to spend time with that person because you're, if you're committing yourself to either them as a leader or committing yourself to being a partner with them or being a husband or a wife with them, you're setting yourself up for big trouble. Now, he goes on first, verse 25. He says, So also the good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So there are some people who they come to the church, you see all of their good works right up front. You go, wow, that's great. Even there, you've got to be a little careful because maybe one of the reasons they're conspicuous is they're very good self-promoters. The best kind of people, in my view, are the people who just do the good works. And you find about it out about it afterwards. There you know you're dealing, hey, this guy's a, a man of humility. This guy's a man of, of godliness. And so what Paul is saying in these last two verses is take time to see the person. Take time to see the sins that they do. Take time to see the good works that they do because really the kind of people who they really are is not readily apparent. So that's Paul's reason for not laying on hands too quickly. And uh, we're going to wrap it up. And let me just, there's one other scripture I want to share with you. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. This kind of goes on with this whole idea that some things are conspicuous, some things aren't. Paul says, but for me, or with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, there are two problems here. One is Americans have become incredibly quick to judge. All you have to do is read an article about something that somebody did and then go down to the news thread where people are posting their comments on that. I mean, everybody's giving their opinions. Oh, they should never have done this. This is terrible. And they're making judgments, and they know nothing about what they're judging. Don't be that kind of person. Number two, don't necessarily acquit yourself just because you can't see what you're doing wrong. If you're taking notes, write down two scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then what you should do in contrast to that, what Jeremiah is saying is we can't understand ourselves. That's why Paul is saying, I am not acquitted by the fact that I'm not aware of anything against myself. That's why we need Psalm 139, 23 through 24. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. By the way, if some of you are struggling with anxiety or fear, 
Psalm 139, 23 through 24 is an amazing prayer to pray. Ask God to help you understand your anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me. So there are three requests that he gives in Psalm 139, 23. And then the final request is, lead me in the everlasting way of righteousness. You guys, don't be so quick to justify yourself. Have you ever met people that when you bring something up to them, they always have an excuse? (coughs) Drives you crazy, doesn't it? They're the kind of people who like to acquit themselves. But Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, here's his conclusion, and this is brilliant. Therefore, do not pass judgment before the time before the Lord comes. You shouldn't pass judgment on me. I shouldn't pass judgment on you. And then you, you may be saying, wait, back at the beginning, we're saying we need to correct other people. Yes, when you see behavior that goes contrary to the word of God, you need to correct that. You're not judging. The word of God is judging. But wait till the Lord comes. Oh, man, this is kind of scary in a way. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. In other words, all the things you thought you got away with. Here it comes to the light. Even worse, he will disclose the purposes. That word should actually be motives. Disclose the motives of the heart. So two things are going to be brought to light in the judgment. Number one, the things you did in darkness that you thought were well hidden, but there is no darkness with God. And number two, your motives. But I love the last little phrase then each one will receive his commendation from God. So even in this judgment, when I'm going to go, oh, it's going to be a judgment of grace where God is going to wipe away that stuff with the fire of Jesus' judgment. You see, I think what's going to happen is my house that has some good things that have been built in it that I've done in the power of the Holy Spirit and some really bad things built in it that I did in the power of the flesh the bad stuff is going to be burned away. And I'm going to be shouting, burn, baby, burn. I want to get rid of that stuff as quick as possible. And then what's left, each one is going to receive his praise from God, his commendation from God. So, you don't need to worry about making sure that Joe and Sally and Jim get judged. Jesus is going to take care of that. And you know what? It's a lot easier not having to be judge of all the earth. I've discovered that. When I, when I retired from judge of all the earth, life got a lot less stressful for me. So, that's 1 Timothy 5. And before I let you go, we've got a couple minutes left. Uh,